on tonight's lesson, I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up as to what's coming. Now, we had been doing a Wednesday night series, Insights from the Psalms, and we went through the first 41 Psalms, not, not getting every one of them, but touching on most of those Psalms. And it had always been my intention to break that series up into parts so that we would have some variety in our, in our teaching here and the subject matter that we would focus on. And I had never intended to go through all 150 psalms all as one solid block. Originally, I had planned on going through Psalm 50 or up to Psalm 50 and then taking a break. After seeing or being reminded that the psalms are generally broken into five books and the first book ended with Psalm 41, which I just did recently, I decided as much as I love Psalm 42 and as much as many of you do, you're going to have to wait. We're going to come back to Psalms in the future and pick up where we left off. Lord willing, if he tarries and doesn't return, we'll handle the rest of the Psalms in parts while we also inter interchange some, some other things. So the next thing that we're going to be studying is Chronicles. And originally that was one book. It split into two books originally. And the reason that it caught my eye and that I want to go through it is several reasons, but the primary one is that I, be, I hadn't previously been aware that in the Torah or the Jewish breakdown of the Old Testament, Chronicles is actually the last book of the Old Testament. And the reason for that is because it's a book that's being written from a post-exile perspective when the nation of Israel, of course, not not all of it because the 10 northern tribes are already dispersed, but you're left with Judah. They've been 70 years in exile, and now we're looking at what about the promises? What, what about the covenant promises that God has made? We see and we've been reminded over and over again through prophets and even through the book of the Kings, how did we get to this place where we lost out on or where we have had to suffer the consequences of our continual rejection of God and refusal to trust him. But is that it? Is that the end of the story? Is that all that there is for us? And the answer is no. And so the, the Old Testament as it's arranged that way actually ends with now a, not so much a repetition of kings but a, a look at the history starting even from Adam. You'll see that the first word of of First Chronicles is Adam, as we start with genealogies, and it leads us up to an ending where Cyrus is saying, now I'm going to release you from this temporary exile, and I'm going to release you to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but it really gives this spot of hope. That's what it's really about, is instead of focusing on all the failures, it looks at the history of the kings of Judah in a more upbeat light, seeking to remind the nation of God's promises of the Davidic kingdom and of the coming Messiah and of the rescue and redemption from exile in a more permanent way and in a more lasting eternal way. And so it's got, it ends then the Old Testament when you look at it that way, it ends with sort of this upbeat reminder of the faithfulness of God. So it ends with a, a note of hope. And so as I've been studying it and looking at it, this is something that I decided I want to do a study on. Not 100% sure exactly how much of it I'll get into. For sure, I'm going to get into the Second Chronicles more heavily than First Chronicles, but again, it's one book. So be praying for me as I navigate through that so that one, it wouldn't just be academic and uh, a review of history, 
but a biblical history, but it would be something that would be instructive and profitable and useful to our lives to look at that. Also, the plan is on Sunday, Lord willing, to begin a study in the book of Romans for our Sunday morning studies. So being praying for both of those upcoming studies. But tonight, we're going to take a look at Titus chapter 2. And as much as anything, it's going to be just a gap fill kind of a message, but I don't want to really see it that way because it was something that really jumped out at me yesterday when I was looking at Titus chapter 2. So the title of tonight's message is God's Grace Teaches. God's Grace Teaches. And we see this kind of funny personification of grace as God's grace is being described in human terms that God's grace could teach that it would have this teaching ministry to us. And I was reading the letter that Paul wrote to Titus yesterday, especially chapter 2, but I ended up reading the whole letter. But I was reading it and in preparation for even a little bit of a devotion that I did at the, at the board meeting last night. But I decided to cover this section that I found to be really fascinating here, which is a continuation of what I actually talked about or we talked about collectively as a board last night, and that's verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. Now, to get you up to speed, just because we can't cover the whole book here tonight, but just give you a little bit of an overview here, the general tone of this letter that Paul writes to Titus is one of advice relating to the assigned task that he was given. Now, what was the task that Titus was given? It was to promote healthy, sound, stable, and properly functioning churches in this one area, called Crete. So we see that in chapter 1, verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, Paul writes to Titus, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So there was a mission that had been assigned and now you have Paul following up have failure at any of those different levels because there's human beings involved who are imperfect, who are flawed, who are broken, who are still living in a sin-cursed world with sin natures, and despite having been made alive or regenerated, given a new nature, given the power of the Spirit of God living inside of us, the truth is we're not always yielded to the leading of the Spirit of God. We're not always focused vertically. We're not always looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Oftentimes, we're leading 
our own paths, we're directing our own paths, we're focused on our own things, we're being influenced by the world around us, by people around us, by sin internally and externally, and it causes dysfunction. And so Titus had been sent to this area that was having problems with the idea that you could set things in order. Now, one of the things that that would involve would be to appoint elders in each of these places that I commanded you. Now, we don't know exactly which cities that were, exactly how many churches we're talking about, but that's sort of the purpose statement of, in terms of the assignment that Titus had been given. Now, Paul communicates the role of elders in accomplishing the objective, which the objective was to set things in order that were lacking. So if you wanted an overview of verses 5 through 9, you can see there's a role of elders. Titus is supposed to appoint them so that there would be
define grace, but this idea, the primary thought of it, is one that it flows directly and is, it's inextricably linked to God's love. That's the motive for grace. But as you think about grace, it's God treating us in a beneficial, benevolent type of a way when it's not deserved. It wouldn't be grace if it was deserved. It would be a reward for something that had already been done. And so we're talking about God's grace, and it's appeared, it's been revealed, made visible to all men. Now, how was it revealed or made visible? And we're told that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's me filling in some blanks, but it's appeared to all men because it's the thing that brings salvation. So for the grace of God, it brings salvation, and it's appeared to all men. So as we think about it brings salvation, modifies or expands on this reference to God's grace. So it's God's grace, the grace of God, and what is it that we know about God's grace? It brings salvation, and in the context here, it has appeared to all men. Now, when you think about salvation here, it's salvation from sin's penalty. We know that that's true, but this is something that is being written to Titus, who is a believer and a pastor. So in it's very likely that the primary emphasis that Paul has here is salvation from sin's power and even potentially in view anytime you're talking about salvation, oftentimes all three phases of salvation are in view at the same time, that God's grace is what gives us salvation from sin's penalty, gives us practical sanctification or salvation from the power of sin to influence our present day, every moment of every day, moment by moment walk, and then one day we look forward to the salvation that God's grace provides from the very presence of sin. And so we think about that, we talk about that either as phases of salvation or tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. Some of that is easy to think about. Some of it overlaps and is, is a little bit more difficult to think about. But this is the grace of God. It brings salvation and it's appeared to all men. Now, the main thought is not that that I'm after here tonight. The main thought that I'm after is the grace of God which happens to have appeared to all men, and it's the type of thing that led to salvation past, present, and future, but that grace teaches us something. It teaches us something, and that's what I really want to get into. It teaches us that. Now, here we see the impact that the revelation of God's grace was intended to have. God's grace not only was intended to be the, I guess, the basis for our salvation, but it was intended to do something. We were intended to learn from seeing and observing God's grace. As God's love even was demonstrated, we see God's grace revealed, God's grace applied, God's grace made available in our day-to-day lives so that we should learn something, that we could be taught something. And so we're here, and this is what caught my eye about this, is that God's grace is said to be teaching. And so in a sense, you'd, you'd say, well, what are we even talking about here, teaching? Well, I'll get to that a little bit more in a second, but we have this picture of God's grace bringing about learning. God's grace instructs the believer in the same way a a child is instructed. So when you look at this word for teaching, it's talking about instructing a child. When you think about yourself, you're a child of God. If you've put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf, you're God's child. And as God's child, God wants you to grow. 
He wants you to learn things. He wants you to understand things that you didn't previously know with the objective in mind that as you would be enjoying Him, as you would be walking in fellowship with Him, as you would be depending on Him, as His Spirit would be working in your life, that you would apply some of the things that you learned. That as a sign of maturation, God would be the one working in and through you. It'd be less about you and more about Him and that He would be reflected by the things that you would say, the things that you would do, as evidenced by thinking that ultimately was depending and trusting and focused on him. And so, just like a child, God wants each of us to grow and to mature over time. Now, you can talk about that as progressive sanctification, this idea that over time, an immature baby believer, God's child, but a young child, could grow into God's adolescent child, grow into God's adult child, that there would be maturity that would take place over time as there would be growth that would take place over time. Now, there's two thoughts here or ideas that are communicated to describe what the Christian is intended to learn or be taught about his or her manner of thinking and his or her manner of living. Now, one of them focuses more on living, one of them focuses more on thinking, but the first one is focused on the manner of living, the manner of living that would be taught or learned by God's children and taught by what? Taught by God's grace, and we'll see maybe what that looks like a little bit in a minute. But the first phrase here that we see is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So if you read it focusing more on the on the we should live, teaching us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, which at the same time then means by default denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. So the first part is focused on living, how we should live. Now, that's something that sometimes I think in an effort to be very grace-centric, we don't want to talk about God's will for our lives too much. We don't want to talk about how explicit God has been about what a Christian manner of living should look like, what it should include, what it should uh, involve or be characterized by. And God gets really, dis- really specific about that. And I think sometimes we're right to do that because the tendency of man is to focus on the specifics or the outcomes instead of how those outcomes are achieved. And so that's why we've, I think historically, even me personally, I sometimes are reluctant to talk about God says this, this is what should be the byproduct or this is what the outflow should involve or look like. Well, w- why would you be scared about that? Well, because there's a real problem if your takeaway from the message is this is the outflow I need to produce in my life. All of a sudden, you're very focused on behavior and outcomes and you're not focused on what brings about those outcomes. And the truth is that anything that God desires for our lives, and he's been very specific about many, many examples of it, in terms of, well, you could come up with a million of them. I'm not even going to try tonight. Different things that God says, flee this, avoid this, choose this, don't choose that, don't do this, don't do that. Now, as a grace-centered, grace-focused church, we don't want to focus on lists of do's and don'ts, because that's not Christianity. Those are byproducts of a relationship 
with a personal God who wants to live life with us and wants to empower working in our lives a way of life that would be consistent with those outcomes that the Bible does mention, though. And so I think you have to find some amount of balance in that where you say, we have to preach faithfully that we don't produce outcomes in the Christian life. God works through us. The power source for achieving, in a sense, though it's not viewed in that sense, but for having godly living in your life is not that you're fixated on godly living. It's that you're enjoying and fixated on the Savior. That you're allowing the Spirit of God to be the one that's driving you. That you're walking by faith and not by sight. That you're not leaning on your own understanding. You're trusting the Lord with all your heart. That you're looking in a heavenward, you have a heavenward gaze and occupation. That you're being humble and saying, apart from staying connected to the vine, God's Spirit is never going to be able to work in and through my life. But while I'm connected to him, enjoying him, fellowshipping with him, depending on him, as I stay abiding in him, as I'm walking by means of his spirit, then he will in turn produce in and through my life the kind of life that would be consistent with some of the descriptions that he makes very clear in his word are affiliated with or associated with this godly way of living. And so I don't know if I'm saying that 100% right, but that's how I see it. And I think we, we can talk about some of the outcomes while still being mindful of how they end up being realized in the life of a believer. And here we have some that are very specific. We should live. Now, the action here is the living. We should live. And it describes the intended or desired manner of living that a Christian would have. And it's described with three adverbs. And these should be characteristic of your life in this present age. It says that that's the time frame that we're talking about, not some future date, but in the present age that we would live soberly, righteously, and godly when? In the present age, right now. And so that's the time frame that we're looking at. But I want you to take note of this word should. We should live. And it indicates that this is God's will, this is God's design. This is God's plan, but this is not automatic. This is not automatic. These things will be true when we abide in the vine, when we're depending on the Lord, when we're in fellowship with the Lord, when we're trusting the Lord, when we're walking by faith, when we're having a heavenly mindset and perspective. These things will be true. But what are these three adverbs? You should live soberly is the first one, soberly. And it involves exercising moderation, self-control, and wisdom. Now it's inward looking because this particular adverb is focused on an internal perspective more than anything else. Wisdom, internal wisdom, self-control, personal self-control, this moderation. Even you think about the description, let your moderation be known of all men. Could you ever have that be realized in your life by waking up tomorrow morning, make a note here tonight, I need to be more moderate. And you make a note and then tomorrow morning you get up and you say, today's objective, be more moderate. And I'm going to remind myself of that 12 times today. And by fixating and focusing on being more moderate, 
then I'm gonna fulfill God's plan for my life. See, that's not how it works. But yet it is an accurate description of a characteristic associated with godly living, a spirit-produced way of life. Now what's the second one? You should live, we should live. How would it be characterized? Second adverb, righteously. And it refers to a manner of living that is right. It's right in God's eyes, from God's perspective, not from human perspective. Now that's outward looking. More that's focused more on the perspective or what a, another person might observe. That, that's right living. Right living as informed by God's truth. Now the last adverb here is godly. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. And that one's upward looking. It refers to an attitude of devotion or reverence for God. What is your thinking? How do you see God? Do you see him reverently? Do you see him for who he really is? Do you see him in his grace and his mercy and his love toward you? Do you see how sovereign he is, how righteous he is, how holy he is, how set apart he is in that sense? Are you aware of those things? And does that give you a proper reverential respect for God? Or are you flippant about the way that you view God? You start to make him out to be just like another human being. His perspective isn't very important. He doesn't carry any extra weight in your thinking or in your life. Now I would suggest this is true. I would, sec I would suggest that by default we have a very irreverent view of God. And by default we do make his opinion to be on par with just any other random person in our lives perspective. And in many instances, we're actually have more, we're more influenced or impacted by one of our friend's perspectives about things than we would be about our creator God, Savior's perspective about things. And you say, no, that's not true. Think about how quick you are to make changes or adapt, adopt, ad adapt your behavior or thinking based on something that you hear from a human source and how reluctant you are to allow God to make any kinds of changes in your thinking, your priorities, your perspective, the way that you're viewing things. Isn't that just a byproduct of really not having any kind of reverential awe or respect for God? If we had a proper awe for God, wouldn't we be more open to or impacted by what he says, the truth that he communicates and speaks into our lives? It ought to be. And that's what says that right here. We should live in a way where it's sober, righteous, and godly. Now, what will this also involve by default? And this is why I put this last, because I think the focus is on the living. We should live this way in this present age. And by default, that means we're denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. It's either ungodliness and worldly lusts or it's soberly, righteously, and godly. It can't be both. And there is a volitional choice involved. But the choice is primarily one of dependence and focus, more so than it is choosing sober, righteous, and godly over ungodly and worldly. See, you're on thin ice, I think, when you try to make the decision, first and foremost, primarily about choosing between the outcomes instead of choosing between the underlying perspective and attitude that leads to 
outcomes. And I don't think many churches necessarily get that emphasis quite right. It's really easy to focus on the outcomes and say, hey, you got to choose today between soberly, righteously, and godly or ungodliness and worldly lusts. And so you're going through the day or you're looking at it from that perspective and it's, it's really more an issue of dependence and focus. Who am I going to be trusting? Who am I going to be looking to? Who am I going to be following? Who's going to be allowed to empower this thing? Who's going to be leading? Who's going to be directing? Who knows best, God or me? Those are the kinds of thinking and thoughts, the thought process that is actually what then leads to which of these you're making. Because if you choose to trust the Lord, then you're not at the same time going to be leaning on your own understanding. If you walk, choose to walk by means of the Spirit of God because you're enjoying fellowship with God, then what? Then you're not going to be walking under the influence of the sin nature. You can't be doing both at the exact same time. So that's more the choice than it is to say, I want to pick one of these categories of three or two. I'm going to choose soberly, righteously, and godly over ungodliness and worldly lust. So those, those various outcomes, they flow from those decisions about who am I going to trust, who am I going to focus on, who am I going to depend in, depend on myself or God. Focus on my circumstances, other people, the world, or am I going to focus on God? Now, we should be looking. We should be looking. That's the second thing. So we should be living is one of the ideas that's being taught. So the grace of God is teaching us that we should be living, and then it's teaching us that we should be looking. So let's come back to our passage here, verse 13. So teaching us that we should live, is verse 12, teaching us that we should look, or we should be looking, for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That still goes back to what the grace of God is supposed to be teaching believers. So we should be looking. Now again, this is not automatic either. We have should there. We should be doing this. And again, it won't occur naturally. Naturally, instead of looking for, with this eager expectation about the Lord's return, we're going to be looking at other things, captivated by other things, worried about other things, fixated on other things. And the encouragement here is that as we really come to terms with what the grace of God is all about, that it's going to teach us That we ought to be, we should be living this way. We should be looking, though, this direction. The direction being looking for what? And it's referring to this general mindset, but looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'll say this because it's true in my life. It tends to be a problem, this particular exhortation. This is not, by default, what believers tend to be looking for. We are so easily distracted by so many other things. And that's, frankly, I think why so many believers are such Debbie Downers. Because we're not remembering the hope. The believer's perspective is not one of hopelessness and helplessness. The believer's perspective is one of victory, one that's filled with hope, one that has all of the resources that are necessary for surviving and thriving in this life. 
than the time that we have in eternity to come. We're lacking nothing. Well, then why do we, why do we go moping about sometimes worse than unbelievers? Well, it's because we're not appropriating, we're not viewing, we're not standing on the promises. We're, we're loosely aware of the promises, but we're not appropriating them, we're not standing on them, we're not resting in them. We ought to be reminded regularly and be thinking regularly about the Lord's return. Because how is it described here? As It's described as the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, considering the imminent possibility of Christ's return should fill you with joy. It should fill you with hope. It should fill you with peace, not dread, not fear, not anxiousness. We don't need to have a defeated perspective in that regard. So we should be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. We should be living and we should be looking. Now, how does the revelation of God's grace teach believers these things about we should, living this way and looking in this direction? Well, again, we're personifying grace. So grace isn't directly standing on a pulpit per se and speaking like I am tonight. But indirectly, you're taught about by grace as you meditate about, consider more deeply, understand more fully, and experience practically God's grace. So I'll say those things again. As you meditate about God's grace, as you consider more deeply what is really involved when you think about God's grace, as you understand it more fully, as you experience it practically in your life, then you're going to be taught these things. Now, this is God's past grace in terms of God's gracious actions towards you that have already occurred. This is God's daily and continual present grace that he makes available in his actions or his dealings with you each and every moment of every day, right now, in time. And it's considering and thinking about it, appreciating and appropriating the love that God must have for you to have promised you to deal with, to promise to deal with you graciously for every moment for all of eternity in the future as well. Now put all of that together. As I meditate on those things, as I think on those things, then I, by default, I'm learning things. I'm being taught things. As I kind of work through that process of what would that mean? How would that impact my living right now? How would that impact my thinking right now? How would that impact what I'm looking at, what I'm focused on, what I'm looking for? As I'm thinking about God's grace past, present, and future. You see, God's grace toward you should produce a desire to want to live for Him. God's grace toward you should be producing you a fixation or a focus on God's return, the Lord's return. I'm just going to have you turn to one passage here tonight, Romans chapter 12. This is well known by most of you. In a sense, you could say, well, you could just read it. We all have this memorized. Some of you maybe do. Some of you don't. But Romans 12, 1. Thinking about God's grace, considering God's grace, appropriating God's grace, really understanding what God's grace really entails, it should produce a change in terms of the way that you would be living your life. Now again, as a byproduct of enjoying the Lord. 
the things that you would be thinking about, looking toward, looking forward to. But Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you. This is, I implore you, I'm begging you. Therefore, brethren, written to believers, by the mercies of God, in some ways interchangeable with grace there, that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. As you think about, meditate about, understand and experience God's grace, you would be having a different view toward Him. You would be focused on Him. You would be trusting Him. The result of that is you would be available to Him to accomplish His purposes for your life as He works and leads and directs in your life instead of you doing it. The result of that would be that you would have a life that is characterized by these adverbs that were positive, soberly, righteously, godly, that we would be looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, the hope, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That would be true as a byproduct of understanding God's grace and how he's dealing with us. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.15, I want to read you this. Some of you know this verse, but I want to read it to you in a, in a newer translation. It says, He, Christ, died for everyone, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. The ones who have received his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ. Because they're focused on living for Christ? No, they maybe desire that. They came to a place in their life where they said, I don't want me anymore, I want him. I want all him and none of me. But they don't pump out Christ's life in themselves. They enjoy the Lord. They depend on the Lord. They trust the Lord. They walk in fellowship with the Lord. They allow the Spirit of God to work in their lives. What's the result of that? They're no longer living for themselves. That's the outcome of these decisions to have a mind that is stayed and focused on and looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So then we continue with verse 14 here. See, God's grace was intended to transform believers for God's use. Now, we've already covered that really when we're looking at this idea of living and looking. But living and looking, if you weren't sure that that was his focus here in this passage, he repeats himself in verse 14 in a sense. Because now he's going to describe that Savior that we have, that Savior Jesus Christ. So 14 continues that thought about the Savior. Now what about the Savior does Paul want Titus to be reminded of as it relates to living and looking? Who gave himself for us that, with what purpose in in mind? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people. And what would characterize those people? They would be zealous for good works. They would be zealous for good works. So sometimes people ask me, well, what about good works? Because if you talk about grace, they would say, most of my focus has always been on what I can do for God. It's always been outcome focused. It's always been behavior driven. Always focused on changed lives. How can I change my life? How can I live a godly life? What are the boxes I need to check for that to be true? Well, it is true 
that God is in the business of transforming lives for his use, for his purposes, but not because you're the one who's going to do it. So let's break this last part down here. He says, to me, verse 14 stands for this idea of come as you are. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. You see, understanding God's love and Christ's sacrifice should change your perspective. God saved you for something better. God saved you for something better. We're back to the theme here that the grace of God was trying to teach us about living and looking. What that would be if your mind was in the right place, if you were thinking correctly, what would that be? You would be living soberly, righteously, and godly and looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Now we see a repeat of that really here because that's why that was God's plan or God's purpose in redeeming you. Now, so he says, I'm not going to redeem you because you deserve it or because you did these things or accomplished these things or made yourselves acceptable to me. I'm going to redeem you from the slave market, the bondage that you were in to the penalty that was owed for your sinfulness when you were hopeless and helpless and you were dead in trespasses and sins. I'm going to rescue you right then and I'm going to redeem you. And if you think about that word redeem, it means to set somebody free by paying a price or a debt. So that accomplishes Uh, or speaks to God's purpose. God's purpose was that he wanted to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now that's true positionally in terms of our identification with Adam and a race of sinners, but it's also true practically. Now how did God do that? Jesus Christ gave himself for us for what purpose? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. That's just not speaking of a point in time in the past. Setting us free from sin. Sin's penalty, but also sin's power. We're not just talking about justification. We're talking about practical sanctification here too. With what ultimate objective in mind? That he would purify for himself. You see, God is the focus. God is the focus of all this, not us. We make it about us because we naturally are self-focused. But the, the, the message of the Bible is that the focus is on God and his plans and his purposes and his redemption and what he can do for man. And so you see that here. God wants to purify for himself his own special people. And the idea there of, of purif- purify is just cleanse us for himself and the fulfillment of his own purpose is the way to understand that. And so, how is the mindset of these special people described as we end our study tonight? They're described as being zealous for good works. Now, it reminds me an awful lot of Ephesians 2.10, doesn't it? Turn there. I I guess I wasn't telling the truth when I said one passage. Ephesians 2, you know it well, but let's just look at this because I think it's the same general idea. There's nothing about this that is undermining grace. The whole thing is about how God's grace teaches us that God wants us to live in a certain way, that God wants us to be looking in a certain direction, that that's what he saved us for, in fact, was that he wanted to redeem us for a life that's better than what we ever would have experienced without him, that that life would be characterized by good works, works that would please him and would shine the light favorably on him, would exalt and lift him up. But of course, we know Ephesians 2.8 very well. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, here's our same word again, we should walk in them. So this idea that every 
that you can't be a believer if you're not doing this is nonsense. Here's another example of a passage that says this should be true. We should live soberly. We should be looking. We should walk in them, but it's not guaranteed that we will be. Meaning there's still volition involved in this. But the question is, is this God's mindset? Is this God's desire? Should this be your mindset that you have this idea that I want to be zealous to be useful to God? Now you can use these exact words, zealous for good works. But what's the underlying idea? That I have this energy, I have this excitement about being available to be used by the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's my reasonable service. I'm not driven by guilt, shame. I'm not browbeat into it. I respond in love to the love that he's shown me. I see how much he cares about me. I see and am convinced that he knows best. I see that the only way to experience the abundant life is to trust him moment by moment, day by day. And in doing so, I'm available then for the Lord to use, not because I'm special, but because I'm available and willing and yielded. I'm humble in those moments. Now I'm available to God for God to work through me as a conduit for him to accomplish his will and his purposes. And that's why the mindset is, are we in a place where we're we're really saying, not my will, but thy will be done? Are we saying, I want to, be available for you to fulfill your purposes in my life, not because of me, but because of you. Because you're so awesome, so good, so wonderful, so, so powerful, so loving, so kind. I want my life to be used by you. That I would present my body as a living sacrifice in that sense. I'll tell you what, too often when we're being honest, Zealous for good works is not the phrase that somebody would use to describe us. Now again, I don't think we should overly focus on that because I think, again, that's a, that's a result, that's an outcome of a general mindset that just wants to enjoy the Lord, trust the Lord, depend on the Lord. But it's something that is mentioned here. It's something that should be then characteristic of the one who is trusting the Lord. So we have our lesson here tonight. God, God's grace teaches, kind of a funny phrase, teaches about living and looking. And we, we observe that knowing, understanding, internalizing, and experiencing God's grace, it naturally impacts the maturing believer's manner of living and focus, what they're looking at. And the impact or the learning is largely dependent on appreciating and considering God's grace. And you see, the natural tendency is to take God's grace for granted. As I was thinking about this passage tonight, I was thinking, how could God's grace teach you anything if you just take God's grace for granted? If you've just been the beneficiary of it for so long that you're just, it's nothing exciting to you anymore. You don't even consider it. So then the question I want you to think about as you leave is, what is God's grace showing you? What is God's grace teaching you? What impact is God's grace having on your life? And to me, what a beneficial reminder to never forget the central importance of God's grace in every facet and in every phase of the Christian life. Because that's ultimately what makes this passage so good, is it puts the focus and keeps the focus on the grace of God and how God's grace 
He, got, he wants to use our understanding and appreciation of his grace to actually show us things that would be beneficial to us in time and in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. In this passage, thank you for allowing us the opportunity to gather and meet together here tonight. Thank you for all that you've done in our lives and continue to do. Pray that we would get out of your way enough that we would allow you to have your way with our lives and to work in and through us so that we could redeem the time that we have here. Thank you for each and every person who's here tonight. Give them safety as they drive home in Jesus' name. Amen.